before we get started with the podcast, I want to tell you something I'm really pumped about this fall. So many leaders are struggling. We understand. We feel challenged as a team. Churches feel challenged. Nonprofits feel squeezed. Businesses don't know how they're going to recover. And if that's you, I want to invite you to be encouraged alongside of us at the Healthy Leaders Summit, October 5th through 8th. We want to speak directly into the challenges you're feeling right now. It's hard to get healthy and stay healthy in this season, but we want to help you. This isn't just one more online conference. This is an online experience. We believe you'll be encouraged. You'll be equipped. We have some incredible thought leaders, authors, speakers, pastors, business leaders coming to you like Mark Batterson, Sam Collier, Jenny Katrin, Pete Scazzaro, Katie Cole, the Hottie Lewis. We're also going to hear from Jimmy Miato from Compassion International about the succession plan, why it is working so well. Guys, fascinating conversations with some incredible people. You do not want to miss this. Here's what's cool is you get to watch this from home or you could watch this in the boardroom. You could watch this with your team, with a friend, with somebody else or completely by yourself. We want to encourage you to set aside a day on the 5th through the 8th, maybe two days, maybe all four days as kind of a study leave, as kind of a break to be refilled after the September push. Guys, we know you're tired and we want to encourage you to block off this time on the calendar, to dedicate these few days to be refilled in your leadership, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. You do not want to miss this. For as little as five bucks, you can attend. So go to healthyleaderssummit.com. The registration is live. It is live right now. So go get this, share this with a friend. We can't wait. We will see you at the Healthy Leaders Summit, October 5th through 8th. We are pumped. Well, I am with my friend, Rich Velotis. Rich, uh, thanks for stopping by today, man. Really excited to hear more about your message. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to connect again. So share about your context. You pastor a local church in one of the most diverse zip codes in America, and that comes with a lot of beauty and a lot of tension. Can you share the intersection of both of those things in your New Life Church family? Yeah, New Life is uh, quite a community. Uh, you know, we have uh, 75 nations represented in our congregation in uh, what National Geographic at one point called the most diverse zip code in the world. Uh, you know, 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital. Um, you know, taking out $20 at the ATM, very disorienting because there's like 15 options, 15 languages and such. And um, half of Queens is foreign born. And so it's an international feel. And um, I mean, just on in my apartment complex here, I mean, there's probably six or seven different ethnic backgrounds on my floor of our, just my neighbors. So it's, wow. it's, it's a it's a remarkable place. <clears throat> and uh, the beauty of being in a community this diverse is uh, you get to see perspectives and hear perspectives about God, about scripture um, from just different angles that you are not necessarily accustomed to. And so at New Life, the diversity is not just ethnic, you know, it's economic diversity as we have there's a shelter right down the block from us. And we have folks who are you know, making a lot of money as well. There is political diversity. Uh, we have uh, sitting next to each other, and I imagine this is happening in many churches, uh, you know, never Trump and pro-Trump people sitting next to each other. I think often unbeknownst to one another because <laughs> if sure. they were sitting next to each other, they'd be out. One will be sitting in the balcony and such. 
There's generational diversity in our church. We're not just like a young church. We have folks that span the generational spectrum. Uh, and so it's beautiful. We get to see various perspectives. At the same time, because of these, uh, this level of diversity, the tensions are very real. Uh, and so whether we're talking about the music being too loud for older folks uh, or too low for younger folks, whether we're talking about uh, Rich, you should be preaching more on race or Rich, you're preaching way too much on race. Yeah. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, our engagement politically, uh, the tensions are very real, uh, especially in a context like um, the one I'm in. Mm. Uh, you got to tell me, man, how was quarantine in New York City for you? Well, quarantine is interesting. You know, at one point when things were ramping up with COVID in uh, March, April, May, Queens was the epicenter. Mm. And Elmhurst Hospital in particular was the epicenter, which was in news, you know, in CNN, New York Times, all that there, featured all over the place. And I'm about less than two miles from that hospital where I live. And, and so it was very disorienting because I would hear the sound of sirens all the time, nonstop during the course of the day. And so I was just reminded on a regular basis of my mortality, mm. um, lots of uh, anxiety. And I, 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 I think studies will show at some point, I mean, I feel like I'm already experiencing some form of PTSD. Um, and I know my children are very anxious, like going outside, what do we touch? We don't want to touch doorknobs. So we're in an apartment complex where there's 120 units in this building. So, you know, lots of people. Uh, and so, and on one level, I was much more aware of just my mortality, uh, as a pastor who had many congregants impacted by COVID losing family members with COVID through COVID, uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing, I mean, it really just challenged my relationship with uh, in prayer with God and home all the time. And I just thought, I think this is a time to really now cultivate greater rhythms of silence and solitude in our 850 square foot apartment here in yes. Queens with yeah. my six year old son and 11 year old daughter. How do we now try to create holy space within this small apartment for the sake of prayer and contemplation and such? Um, so I, my life with God was deep, uh, strengthened, I think, significantly in that. Uh, and then, I mean, how has it changed during quarantine? Overnight, I, be, I was a pastor and I became a principal. Uh, and so, you know, having to uh, homeschool my kids. My wife is the chancellor, uh, so she's, <laughs> she's really running the show here. Uh, but uh, pretty disorienting. And um, as we head into the fall, uh, we still don't know exactly what the plan is. So uh, we find ourselves in this liminal space, this in-between space not fully knowing exactly what's going to unfold. So uh, I think disorienting is the right word. Mm, sure. Well, I think there are no accidents. And I think that this is one of those holy coincidences that your book, The Deeply Formed Life, comes out as we are all wondering what is going on. I think disorienting is the right word as we yeah. think about what is, how are we going to be reoriented uh, from that? But can you give us a definition of the deeply formed life? And also, where has this, this term, this concept, this fire in your bones to write this book come from? Yeah, great question. In terms of deeply formed, my definition, um, and uh, it's a great question. Um, I'm trying to, first of all, I'm trying to, this is my attempt at an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation. 
And uh, spiritual formation is usually um, seen with mountains and monasteries pristinely uh, situated in the background of someone who's writing. Um, I'm writing with sirens blaring and um, homeless people pouring into our church and people running into the subway. And I'm trying to say, I think we can do this even in this context here. Uh, And so uh, my definition is deeply for a deeply formed life is a life that is um, shaped by and for Jesus. And of course, for for the world around us through a uh, robustly integrative framework. And um, at, the, at the end of the day, we want to be shaped into the image of Jesus. But I think every generation um, requires a particular set of emphases um, for the particular moment that we're in. And so the deeply formed life, that integrative framework is marked by five areas. It's contemplative rhythms, it's racial justice, it's interior examination, it's sexual wholeness, and it's missional presence. And I think those five areas, is that, is that all to spirituality and formation? No, definitely not. But I have found that those five areas as a paradigm serve as something really powerful for the particular moment that we're in. It came out of really our local church. These are the five values of our local church. And we have seen lots of people impacted significantly through these values. And so when I wrote the book, I first wanted to codify something for our church. But then I realized, I think this is a paradigm, not just for our local church. I think this is a paradigm for the church. And uh, when you look at what's happening in terms of the pace that people are living, there is not a contemplative pace. Mm. Uh, People are frayed at the edges, burned out. When you look at racial injustice, I mean, I don't even have to comment on that at this point here. But uh, people are, are, are at a loss how to respond. Interior examination, we, we're living on the surface. We are not self-aware. Um, we are not emotionally healthy or intelligent. I mean, we are struggling in this way here. And I count myself as one who's on the journey continually here. Mm-hmm. You know, sexual wholeness. Um, we live in a culture that splits our bodies from our souls. And this mm-hmm. is not uh, something that just came yesterday, started yesterday, but this is an ongoing issue. How do we think through sexuality? And then missional presence, you know, we, we, it's easy to live in a disengaged consumer culture. What does it mean to be the presence of Jesus for the world around us? So, um, you know, it began in our local church, but I, I think it's a paradigm that uh, hopefully this book will invite other churches to explore very intentionally as a formational framework. Mm. And, and I don't know that I've seen very often racial injustice put together with the heart for formation. Can you talk about some of the the marriage of that? I think that's incredibly unique to New Life. And I just so appreciate the work you guys are doing there. How can those two come together where we see a deeply formed life? And yes, I care about racial injustice that's unfolding right now in our country. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is one of the unique things that um, we're wrestling through. When I think about race, racial justice, I, I like to think about it in two ways, in terms of framework and formation. Uh, in terms of the framework, for me, the question I'm asking is, what are the, the various layers that we need to pay attention to to have a meaningful conversation on race? And uh, I've identified six layers uh, to have a really meaningful, robust uh, conversation. And those areas are uh, looking at it through theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically, and formationally. 
Wow, that's and, good. Yeah. Um, that framework, if we're not seeing this issue along multiple lines, we're going to have myopic conversations. And so that framework is what I um, I think through. But then that formation piece, I just don't, I, you know, I want to, race has to be addressed individually, interpersonally, institutionally. Um, and I think we need to do our work on all layers there. Uh, I realize, however, that lots of people don't have a particular formation to enter into this conversation. We're not thinking formationally through it, prayerfully, introspectively, honestly. And so um, I talk about racial habits in the book and a lot of the racial habits are how do we integrate from the contemplative tradition and from an interior examination, whether this comes out, whether you wanna call it out of emotional health or out of the Ignatian tra uh, tradition, how do we look within and slow down our lives so that we can have meaningful conversations about race? Um, and I think, I don't know if people have a spirituality for these conversations. Yes, um, yeah. And so this is what I'm trying to uh, marry in this. And I, you know, for book number two, I, I probably will spend more time trying to develop that framework in that formation. Hmm. Yeah. And so as a, a Puerto Rican man, how have you processed this just personally, yes, as a pastor, I know you're leading others through this. Oh yeah, in quarantine, but but back to the murder of George Floyd. I mean, it just how have you personally processed the last several months, Rich? You know, this is a big question. And last week I spent time journaling, reflecting on this very question. I have a black Puerto Rican mother and a light-skinned Puerto Rican father. So I'm I'm um, mestizo. I'm in, I'm in the middle there. I'm in, you know, I'm, there's a mix. And, and so I find myself often, uh, you know, uh, Latino theologians, Latina theologians would talk about being in exile in this in-between space. And I, I often find myself in that, in that space where, um, emotionally, you know, theologically, and in terms of my leadership commitment, I am as, you know, I'm about racial justice, racial reconciliation, but I have recognized the ways that I live in this world and the way I embody this world. So for example, last two weeks ago, I went um, uh, with my brother who's much darker than I am. And uh, his, his wife is my niece and my family, and we rented a place in Jersey. And beautiful house we rented, went to the beach, tons of white people. <clears throat> and W.E. the boy would talk about uh, in the early 1900s, living with a double consciousness that black people, brown people, they are aware of them, their own consciousness and they are aware of how white people see them. So it's a double consciousness. I realized that I live with a triple consciousness that day. Mm. I'm aware of how I perceive myself. I'm aware of how people perceive me or, you know, I, I feel the gaze. And then I was aware thirdly of how they were looking at my brother, mm. who's much darker than me. Wow. And so I'm carrying this as I'm we're walking down the beach, you know, trying to get our, our, our little chair set up and everything. And I'm like wrestling with all of this in my soul. And so more than anything, I've been, again, disoriented. I have, I think, a, a, a well thought out theology about this, but emotionally, I'm still very disoriented day by day. And when you hear stories that come out seemingly every day, it just deepens the pain. So um, I'm, I'm like everyone, I'm, I'm just trying to lament and reflect and then try to use whatever uh, leadership platform and um, you know um, 
whatever God has given me to move the conversation forward and, and work for justice and reconciliation. Well, thanks for that, Rich. Thanks for, for your honesty. If we can flip the paradigm from the deeply formed life to, I don't know, the, the shallow haphazard life, whatever the opposite of that is, you mentioned anxiety, uh, depression, mental health a little bit earlier. What are some of the other effects that you're seeing right now as this shallow life is toppling and we desperately need to be deep yeah. in our faith? Yeah. Um, addiction. Um, you know, uh, I, I've come across a lot of stories of people now who are, um, whether it's falling back into addictions or new addictions coming up. And when I think about addictions, which I know a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders, this is not unique to any one individual. This is something that's uh, pervasive. Um, you know, the deeply formed life, uh, as I'm thinking about addictions, I think we need to reframe addictions. Usually addictions is seen through the lens of morality and behavior. And it's, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be focusing on this here. I think addictions is our best attempt to try to self-soothe and, uh, and try to survive another day through the pain um, that's often unbeknownst to us, hidden with deep within our own souls and stored in our yes, bodies. Yes, yes. And so if we, if we approach people who have addictions by saying, instead of saying, man, stop that, come on, get into a program and begin the conversation by saying, wow, um, you have learned how to self-soothe and survive through your pain. Uh, congratulations, you know, uh, <laughs> but that doesn't go far enough. Let's try something else. I think it just frames it differently. Um, and so I, I, I think addictions is one. Um, I think reactivity is another. Um, we're, we're in a time of political hostility and um, the, the reactivity is um, the emotionality of the moment where we are, we're not thoughtful, we're not thinking, uh, we're just reacting. And a lot of it is based on fear. A lot of it is based on the need to be in control. Uh, these are some of the things that I'm noticing within myself and um, within the people that I pastor, the leaders that I'm in conversation with. So I, I think addiction and this high level of reactivity, uh, you know, the anxiety is, is what I see coming to the surface, particularly in this moment. Mm. Um, I often hear about people who, have grown up in, in high church, whether it be you know the Catholic church or some other form of high church, they grew up around liturgy. Liturgy to them signals the religion they grew up in. And yet they desperately need the grounding that comes with liturgy. Can you speak to that for a minute? Is that something that you commonly happen upon? And, and what do you say to those people who, who have baggage around liturgy and yet desperately need it? Yeah, for people who um, have that baggage, I think the baggage often comes because the liturgy um, was not properly framed mm. to help us um, see it as a part that can get us to God. And this is the challenge of pastors and leaders across traditions. Why do we do what we do? Um, I'll give an example. Um, I went to a Trappist monastery in 2008, my first experience at a Trappist monastery in the Boston area. I go every year since uh, and, you know, pray with monks a few times a day, getting up at three o'clock in the morning. It's an ungodly hour. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into the sanctuary that first day in this beautiful Trappist monastery. 
And, you know, everyone had, there was the, the basin of water before they get into the sanctuary. Every, I see everyone dipping their finger. You know, I came from an evangelical Pentecostal background that is suspicious of everything Catholic. You know, that was like my, my, what, what my formative years when I first became a Christian. And I'm, I'm, an, I'm in a line of people who are on retreat and I see everyone dipping their finger. And I'm like, what am I going to do at this moment? This is like a crisis. And, and so, you know, it's by seven or eight people in front of me. I get to my place and I just kind of just absentmindedly dip my finger in. And very quickly, I don't even know if I genuflected the right way, uh, but I kind of just put splash the water on my forehead. A little bit of water drips down. Looks like I'm crying as I'm entering the sanctuary. Beautiful. And so I get into the sanctuary. Afterwards, at the end of the service, one of the monks comes out and sprinkles everyone, you know, with water, you know, holy water at the end. The next day I have a conversation with one of the monks. And I just said, hey, can you tell me, why do you have the basin of water when you come in? Why do you sprinkle at the end? Is it just like superstitious? What is it? And um, this monk, a guy by the name of William Menninger, he said to me, it, Rich is very simple. He said, the, the basin of water and that sprinkling reminds you of your baptism. And your baptism reminds you that you belong to Jesus Christ. Mm. And so- when I heard that, I thought, why, why don't, why doesn't every church have a basin in front of, at the entrance of their sanctuary? You belong to Jesus Christ. When he said it that way, liturgy, the, um, the these um, embodied kind of uh, acts of worship, uh, these tangible acts of worship uh, take on much more meaning. I think if pastors and leaders, and this is whether it's, high church, whether it's low church, we have an obligation to remind people, this is why we do what we do. And so for the folks who are wondering, uh, I have a lot of baggage, um, you know, find someone or there are plenty of books out there on liturgy, why we do what we do or why, you know, why, does, why has the church practiced this for centuries? I think that'll help to reframe some of these practices, especially liturgical practices. Mm, that's good. I love the reframing that's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing God do in the church right now? I mean, I, I know that's a huge question, but what are just a few things you're seeing God do within his bride, the church in this moment? Yeah, um, I, I am seeing um, a people who are not necessarily um, interested in church or haven't been interested in church because of the uh, pandemic and because everyone and their mother is live streaming these days, um, I'm me included, you know, uh, with everything. I, I think there is a, 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 a curiosity that's being peaked in people. I given, I mean, I have an uncle, um, Albert, who uh, lives in Florida. He he never goes to church, and I started leading these midday prayers on Instagram, and and he started showing up at every midday prayer. Wow. And and then uh, there are friends of mine that I went to high school with. They're, they're inboxing me, messaging, direct messaging me about, you know, what's God doing in their lives and what they sense God doing in their lives. They're not even Christian, you know. So I think there is I, what God is doing. I think God is always moving towards the world in love. And I think these moments often uh, uh remind us that God is at work and people are, are really seeking God. So that's, I mean, I think ultimately that's what God is doing. God is still working. God is still active. God is still moving towards the world in love. And, um, and I, and I'm encouraged by the church. I mean, 
every Sunday or when I look online, I see the great work that's happening through churches around this country and around the world. Um, I'm very encouraged. Uh, but I, I do think this is a time to release, um, uh, you know, apostolic tenacity. Mm. I, I think we have to, there's ground that, that we need to take in the name of Jesus, spiritual ground we need to take. I, I think this is a time for ecclesiological clarity. What the, what's, what's the church? What does it mean to be the church? Um, I think we need to help people cultivate a firsthand spirituality. How do we have a, a life with God that is um, personal and vibrant and not i'm not living off of the spirituality of someone else the preacher the pastor the worship leader um yeah so i, I think um I'm, I'm encouraged and i think there's some great opportunities before us mm. that's good man all right so we want to zoom out 10 years from now 2030 what do you want people to say about how you live and led through this crazy year oh man um my my hope would be uh, people look back and they see a couple of things. Uh, they see prudence, um, uh, uh, just a thoughtfulness of how we are going about uh, navigating uh, the world that we're in right now, uh, moving beyond reactivity to being really thoughtful and wise. My hope is that people go, wow, that was really wise how you reopened the church. Wow, that was really wise how you sought to develop leaders during this moment. Um, the other thing I hope that people would see is, wow, um, your community really was marked by mercy and forgiveness. Uh, and, you know, that is in short supply these days, mercy and forgiveness. And I pray that people look at our congregation and say, you are in one of the most um, politically, socially uh, intense, hostile moments in history. And look at your community. You guys are extending mercy and grace and forgiveness and working for justice. Um, I think those are some of the things that uh, would be really nice to hear uh, mm -hmm. because this is what we're trying to, to do in following Jesus. Well, friends, if you're listening to this, you've survived. You survived a crazy season of life and leadership. What's clear to me right now is we are in the wilderness. We've gone off the path, and we are bushwhacking through the wilderness, trying to find trails and asking, what is ahead? What is this new different that we are stepping into in late summer and fall and beyond? And truthfully, we don't know. We don't know how this thing is going to move what decisions we're going to have to make. But I will tell you this, it will require strong leadership. It will require decisions of you that you haven't made before. And I want to walk alongside of you in your leadership journey. I call myself a mountain guide for the leadership journey. And guys, as you navigate the wilderness, let me remind you, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Me and our other Stay Forth coaches are here to help you as you navigate these treacherous times as we head into the great unknown whether you are a business leader, a ministry leader, nonprofit leader, pastor, if you are a kingdom leader, you're going to continue to have to navigate tough decisions. Now, I know that coaching can be expensive to invest in our 10 tools and 10 sessions coaching process, but we've created an alternative for you that's a coaching subscription. You can pay on a monthly basis. We have a basic plan and a hearty plan. I'll walk alongside of you with regular coaching sessions 
check-ins over the phone, and in-time decision-making. You know that decision that you have to make that week and you're feeling the pressure of? How good would it feel to have somebody in your corner to help you make those decisions? Also have some communication with you on Marco Polo for those back and forth in between. So we believe that this can help us care for leaders even better in this season to help you make your next right step and for us to be a little bit more accessible than just a call every week or every other week. So this coaching subscription, you can find out more about this. It's got an easy price point, honestly, a great entry point for coaching. It's not right for everybody, but some of you listening could gain so much from this coaching subscription as we continue to navigate the wilderness heading into the fall. Check out more on this at stayforth.com backslash coaching. Again, check out our coaching subscription. Spots are limited, but I would love to walk alongside of you in your leadership journey. Shine, shine. We ain't focused so long.